0: Lucid
1: Dreaming. Welcome, audio companions. Welcome to episode five of the fourth anthology of the Lucid Dreaming podcast. A space
0: for conversation and reverie with moving image makers hosted by author and curator pamela cone here is something to hear and there is
1: something to think so let's begin hello dreamers welcome to the lucid dreaming podcast i'm pamela cone in this episode I'm delighted to welcome Louis Henderson, an artist invested in diving deep into whatever subject matter captivates his imagination, a maker interested in configuring bespoke roadmaps to explore the ways in which the historicity or archaeology of post-colonialism politics and anthropology converge, with a focus, as he puts it, on the written, oral and visual signatures of the archaic on the contemporary world. Since his training at the London College of Communication in Le Franois, the National Contemporary Art Studio in Paris, Louis has approached his research, writing, and film work as distinct collaborations with other artists, scholars, historians, and curators to address and question our current global condition as defined by past, present, and future racial capitalism. What we'll talk a lot about in the upcoming hour is Louis's most recent collaboration with longtime producing partner Olivier Marbeuf and eight young Haitian artists. They dubbed themselves the Living and the Dead Ensemble. Based between Haiti and France, the ensemble focuses on theater, song, slam, poetry, and cinema. The Living in the Dead ensemble initially came together in Haiti in 2017 in order to create a Haitian Creole translation from the French in order to perform the play Monsieur Toussaint by Martinican writer, poet, philosopher, and literary critic Édouard Glissant. Originally published in 1961, it tells of the tragic death of Toussaint Louverture, the charismatic leader of the Haitian Revolution, the only successful slave revolt in history that led to Haiti's independence 217 years ago. Initiated from an original idea by Louis and Olivier, the ensemble's first film, Ouverture, premiered at Berlinale 2020. Their work here specifically explores different possible methods of talking about both the past and present from a specifically Caribbean perspective. Along with Bijou, Bijoux, Jacques Casimir, Deovela Charistal, James Desiris, Léonard Jean-Baptiste, Cynthia Maignan, Sophonie Meignon, and Mimetech The ensemble's work explores different methods of narrating the history of Haiti, directly from the voice of its people. Navigating from the utopia of a radical and anti-colonial democracy to the catastrophic circumstances facing the country today, the group produces texts, performances, films, and installations that reveal the suppressed richness of Haitian culture. I first met Louis in 2015 at the New Horizons Film Festival in Wrocław, Poland, where our jury gave his 15-minute piece, All That Is Solid, the Best European Short Film Award. Before All That Is Solid, Louis had made A Walk with Nigel in 2010, Logical Revolts in 2012, and Lettre du Voyant in 2013. Three other films preceded Ouvretour, Black Code, Code Noir, made in Ghana in 2015, The Sea is History, a loose adaptation of the poem by Derek Walcott made in the Dominican Republic in Haiti in 2016, and Sunstone in 2017, co-written and co-produced with Portuguese artist Philippa César. All of Louis's projects reflect upon what happens when temporally and geographically disparate elements converge into explorations of the embedded history of slavery and the quote-unquote necro-political control of black populations in the U.S., the U.K., and Europe, and how those histories can be read in the present day. Always intrigued by these possible connections, Louis travels to various sites around the globe to tease out and uncover some truths about what might reside in the archives of any given historical space and time. As well, the surrounding ecologies and landscapes tell stories previously silenced and buried. In the particular case of the 135-minute ouverture, the texts, dialogues, and poems speak to a sense of constant renewal using the talisman of the spiral, or spiralisme. The ensemble of young Haitian artists are not interested in getting stuck in the past like something frozen. They yearn to speak about history's haunting of the present, so that their futures can be shaped with some sense of positive forward momentum. Welcome to the Lucid Dreaming podcast, Louis. Hello. There's so much to talk about, specifically about Tour, And there were some things that happened during the film and also the way in which you write about the emergence of the ensemble and how it came to be, um, how you came to figure out how to work together, what you wanted to say, et cetera. But um, you talk about this, um, in this auto-fictional interview that was done during the Berlinale during the film's premiere, there is this phrase where you talk about, and I'm using the you in a collective way, um, through this sonority of a disharmonic ensemble. And this is a very beautiful idea in the sense of what I think of as song and what I think of as almost the recording of an album, in essence, um, where maybe each member steps forward a little bit and does his or her solo, let's say. Um, But what's fascinating about that is that besides the group of you, you also talk about this doubling and tripling of identities. And in the film, this is expressed in subtler ways than it could be as you sort of explicated in words. But I'm wondering if you could just sort of start with a a conversation perhaps that all of you were having, or maybe you and Olivier were having in the beginning to talk about the way in which, because this could not have been an expected result or could it have? This this sort of, um, you know, almost possession of the characters or the personalities that people were, taking into themselves in a very, very deep way. And I just would love you to start at that point where you realized that that was a very vital part of the process and how you would um, fold it into the film as a whole. I mean, this really happens in the second part where we focus on, on the, the ensemble themselves and what's happening to them, what they're experiencing psychically, physically, emotionally.
0: Yeah, no, that's very, I mean, these are some of the key points. These are some of the key things that get brought up really through the film. And um, <clears throat> the reason why we wrote about those ideas too, is I think just like you said, the way that they're kind of discussed in the film is much subtler than when we write about them. Mm -hmm. But obviously we felt it was important to highlight certain things that we felt that, you know, like often there's kind of a certain conceptual drive within making a work that might not be so clearly foregrounded um, through the narrative or through the script as such. But we feel that you can kind of sense it at the level of the image that we were able to create, especially in this like last section of the film, because, you know, the film is in these three acts. And Mm -hmm. I think by the third act, um, the image becomes something quite different. There's a certain intimacy that gets um, kind of developed that I think you can sense that, you know, really, um, I I was gonna say on the surface of the image, but I don't know if it's really a question of surface. It's just, you can sense that there's a different kind of relation that's been built up between the people on screen and between the person behind the camera, which was in this instance, me and Olivier Marbeuf. Um, so the reason for this also, and the reason why I talk about that is because I think this indicates, you know, how this question of conversation and um, how, how these questions of, you know, like the the certain things that we decide to explore in the narrative in the script, how they came about, because when we went to Haiti first, which was in 2000, well, I, mean, I went to Haiti in 2016, and that's when I met Rossi Jacques Casimir, who's one of mm-hmm. the founding members of the ensemble.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, and then I went back in 2017 with Olivier, uh, and we met up again with Rossi Jacques Casimir, and he, Rossi, had invited seven of his friends from Haiti to participate in this workshop that we did called the Monsieur Toussaint Sessions, which was a translation workshop that we did at, um, at the Centre d'Art in Port-au-Prince. That was July, 2017. There was Rossi, Jacques Casimir. He invited Léonard Jean-Baptiste, Bijou Mackinson, Dieu veut le Chérestal, Sophonie Chérestal, James Desiris, James Fleurisson. Uh, Zach Turin, these were the main members of, of the ensemble that participated initially in that translation workshop. Then James Fleurisson actually has left the ensemble, and uh, Cynthia Magnon, who's the sister of Sophie, she's mm-hmm. joined the group. So now we have um slightly different group. But at that first time that we met, to be honest, I didn't have much of an idea of what I want or me or neither me nor Olivier had much of an idea about what we wanted to actually film in Haiti um, because what we were trying to do was a type of filmmaking where we would allow the place that we're filming in to kind of you know become part of the script and or how the process that we were going through would become part of the narration and part of the story that we would tell and the reason for that is like the main I think one of the main drives um, to kind of, to to adapt and change our methods of working, because that's something that's really important to understand with Overtures, the way that that I personally made that film, and I think I can say this for Olivier too, is very different from anything that that he had either produced or that I had directed before. Um, so, So yeah, so imagine you go somewhere that you've only ever been to once, and you refuse to write a script about that place precisely because you haven't been there before. Mm-hmm. You don't really know the place and you don't speak the language. So we felt it was really presumptuous, presumptuous and arrogant, but this is what cinema does so much. This is, this is really what filmmakers do. They go to countries with scripts they've written somewhere else with their sort of you know, fantasies or ideas about the place they're going to, they do a casting, they get a they they get their cast and then they start shooting two weeks later or three weeks or four weeks later. They have their material, they go back to Europe and they make a film. And we wanted to do it completely differently. So we went to Haiti without any fixed or set sort of preconceived ideas about what it was that would constitute the, the narrative or the script. Of course, we had some general ideas. We knew that we wanted to work on this play by Edouard Glisson called mm-hmm. Monsieur Toussaint. We knew that we wanted to translate that from French to Haitian Creole. We knew that we wanted to film rehearsals of that play. And we knew that we wanted eventually to try and find out how we could make some fictional scenes that would sort of fill out the space around the sides of those rehearsals. So from the very beginning, we decided to start initially just with the play. And the play uh, has various different characters in it, but the scenes that we decided to work upon had eight characters. So that's why we had Rossi Jacques Casimir and he chose the seven other people. Mm -hmm. So they would fill those eight roles, but neither me nor Olivier decided who would play what role. Normally you would do, again, castings, you would see who fits in the best, who does the best lines. We decided not to do it like that. We arrived at the workshops in Port-au-Prince we meet everybody, everyone's already read the play because we sent it to uh, to Rossi via, you know, we sent him a PDF and he could read the the, the text of the play with the, with the rest of the group. They had already decided which roles they would take. And it was interesting because it seemed that some of them, somehow it was almost as if the roles of the characters in the play chose the people that would play them rather than the people choosing the characters because... For example Rossi just said you know he said I have to be Jean-Jacques Dessalines and then throughout the the development of the rehearsals Rossi embodied that that role also like politically he's very kind of really kind of aligned with what someone like Jean-Jacques Dessalines represents in Haitian history Jean-Jacques Dessalines was one of the, he's like the <clears throat> one of the most important Revolutionary generals, and it was him that actually um, brought about independence for Haiti after Toussaint Louverture was was arrested by Napoleon and sent to France. And the other people chose roles that also seemed to kind of fit their their characters somehow. So, so that 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 first initial process of learning of trying to understand f- first how to translate the play and then how to put it into into action as such because this is also something that's important to know about the film. Uh, Initially, I had wanted to just um, film scenes of rehearsals. I was very inspired by the works of Jacques Crevet, or I am still, especially his long, his great Magnus opus um, called Out One, which is this film, you know, he made in the 70s, uh, which is about 12 and a half hours long, which features a sort of experimental theatre troupe trying to, you know, rehearse one of Shakespeare's Uh, plays. And I wanted to sort of do the same thing in a way to kind of film a group of people trying to rehearse a play. But uh, when we arrived and we met the group and we saw how invested and interested they were uh, in theatre and in the theatre and performance scene in Port-au-Prince, we realised that it was really a rather pointless exercise to just make them do rehearsals for a film. So we decided Mm -hmm. to actually do the production of the play. So the first few months of us being in Haiti, when we went back in the winter, we actually just focused on rehearsing the play. And I wasn't really filming. We weren't really thinking about what the film would be. We still had this idea to do a film, but I think no one really knew what that film would be or, or, or would be about. Um, so we really focused on on developing the play. And then it wasn't until we went back to Haiti for the th- for the third time, which was August um 2018, uh, that we started to kind of develop together the more fictional aspects of the play, which was then when people start to sort of discuss how they the the, the characters have kind of like entered into them. And there's this question of haunting, as if the 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 people Uh, or the Haitian members of the ensemble who are acting in the play have been sort of possessed by the spirits or by these characters from the play. And that also comes from, you know, the play by Glissant, Monsieur Toussaint, is about uh, Toussaint Louverture, who is in his cell in the Jura in France, and he's dying, and he's visited on his deathbed by ghosts from the sort of pantheon of Haitian history. Um, So the play is about ghosts that visit Toussaint, and they have this political discussion. Um, And then we performed the play in the National Cemetery in downtown Port-au-Prince. And in that cemetery, some of those heroes are actually buried. Mm -hmm. So we kind of performed the play, you know, in the site in which the the people we're playing are buried. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, So there was this whole you know and then one of the members in the group is a voodoo he's a voodoo priest he's a ugon called James Desiris and he opens the play with a voodoo prayer which uh, is like a sort of invitation to the spectators to join us um in the in the theater piece and the cemetery uh is a very important site within voodoo within voodoo culture uh, a place in which as he says in the film people um go when they die but it's also Uh, where people are born, where people are born spiritually, or where you're born, or where you can kind of come into the afterlife. So the fact of us doing a play about ghosts in the cemetery, which is a sacred site for voodoo religion because of its relationship to birth and death, and obviously, you know, rebirth uh, after death. um, You know, all these ideas were at play, but I don't think still any of us really knew what we could do with it. And then bit by bit, through this conversation, we would just sit down as a group. We would spend a lot of time together sitting around in Port-au-Prince, often at the cafe of uh, the girlfriend of Rossi. She owns a very small little cafe in downtown, just of Gorhou, and we would sit there, drink prestige and discuss, and ideas would just come out. And people would say, ah, you know, for example, the scene where you have, uh, there's Rossi-Jacques Casimir and Léonard Jean-Baptiste, and they do a kind of slam battle where they're yeah. kind of, they're this sort of argument where they're discussing this text backwards and forwards. And that's, that's, Jean Jacques, scene. that's Jean-Jacques Dessalines having an argument with um, Toussaint Louverture's secretary, Gonville, And Rossi said, you know, perhaps we could perform this scene in the place where Jean-Jacques Dessalines was murdered uh, In 1806. I think he was killed. Uh, It's called Pont Rouge. So, again, this was, you know, this was about us being there, not having any preconceived or fixed ideas about exactly what it was we wanted to do, but rather allowing uh, the locations, the narration and then even the images and the way the images are kind of put together and the way the texts are told and recounted, we allowed that to arrive and to emerge, I suppose, like you said, Mm -hmm. uh, through the development of the film. Mm -hmm. And in that sense, I think we felt that we were trying to make a film not about Haiti or about these group of Haitians, but really a film with this group of Haitians and a film with uh, the country and, you know, the 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 landscape and the urban landscapes of of Haiti and then of course that word ensemble then makes so much sense you know and just to go back quickly to your the question of then this sort of disharmony Mm -hmm. an ensemble means together it means to do something with but also obviously it references a musical ensemble so we felt that you know we didn't want to go along with any sort of fixed notions of what collectivity might mean or how we might understand collectivity from a European perspective, for example, and to see how actually, you know, when we're talking with the group of Haitians, there's a lot of um, sort of, you know, uh, uh, cacophony. It's, it's It's not very harmonious. It's lots of people talking all at the same time, shouting, discussing, arguing. So we thought, well, actually, perhaps a more interesting way to do this uh, form of collective process or method would be by allowing each individual to have as much presence as they feel they might need at any given time. In that sense, it's more like a series of solos or a series of duets uh, rather than, you know, a sort of a kind of polyphonic harmony or sort of harmonic uh, kind of orchestral process. It's, Mm -hmm. it's something more akin to, yeah, sort of, the disharmony of like you know a jazz ensemble, well, let's say after jazz after the death of Coltrane.
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, you know the 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 other the other haunting or the other sort of ghost, I guess we could say, is is the language, is this? Um, and I I, I had, um, Philippe Cesar um, on this podcast last year, and we talked a lot about this idea of creolization. And I wanted to go back briefly to the original idea of doing the translation. Um, Glissant wrote the play in French, um, in in the French language. Um, But the way in which the, um, this tool, I I don't think people really understand the way in which this is and acts as a tool of resistance. The, The actual, you know, the mixing and the, the influences of that language that is kind of, you know, it's this coded thing, but it's also a way to, of expression. And I think oh. during the film, the most interesting parts, or some of the mo- more interesting parts is when that gets a bit conflated, because you don't really have this you know, specific lang- uh, the specific scene about language. It's just, again, embedded in almost everything that they're talking about. And this is also a language I'm assuming that you don't really understand either, or maybe there's, you know, there's part of your ear that can sort of pick it up after a while since you're very fluid with languages. But this is another sort of secret, this this sort of um, the underside of things that represents this suppression, this, you know, over hundreds and hundreds of years and the way in which you're weaving all of these ideas together, historically, um, you know, not the opposite. It's the opposite of reverent referential. It's the opposite of reverential as well. You know, really? this way that history is treated and the way in which certain things rose up and certain things were suppressed, you know, it's not this um, sort of clear line in the sand. And And I'd like to move into this discussion of how the language itself, and the ideas, the philosophies, I guess you could say, of these um, young Haitian people who are performers, but they also felt to me so much like scholars, mm, really mm-hmm. like people who were who were really wanting to investigate something that they know innately, but needed to really express explicitly, um, particularly when it comes to this kind of way in which you're translating a very... Mm, you know strict European lexicon into a free wheeling organic language such as the Creole mm. and I didn't actually realize that many people in Haiti do not speak French yeah. you know that is not their language that is the the language of of the the colonists you know but but I guess I was under the impression that it's just still used colloquially there and that's not true.
0: Yeah, well, I mean, that's that's that. Well, <clears throat> I think that's actually the crux of, of what the whole project was about initially. Um, this was because, so the work was written, the, the play Monsieur Toussaint is written by Edouard Glisson. Edouard Glisson comes from Martinique. Mm -hmm. He speaks French and he speaks Creole, but he speaks a Creole from Martinique. It's it's different from from Haitian Creole, but still it's a Creole based on on French. So it shares some similarities, but it has a different vocabulary, different different, different, uh, syntax as well, I think. Um, And he writes this play about one of the most important leaders of the Haitian Revolution. And in the play are certain characters like um, the very famous uh, Maroon slave, um, or he was a Maroon, which means that he ran away from enslavement called um, called Francois Macandal. And there's also, um, you know, various other characters from sort of 18th century Haitian history that are speaking in the play in a rather, sort of stilted, stylized, kind of, I could call it a sort of Glissantian, um, 1960s kind of Gallimard French, Mm. just in certain moments. And Glissant's very aware of that. He knows exactly what he's doing, I'm sure, because Glissant later, you know, is one of the main, how do you call it? One of the main figures behind the the movement for uh, what they called Creolite, Mm-hmm. uh coming from martinique and and also from other parts of the caribbean which was a philosophical and literary movement that you know was trying to push forward the importance of thinking and writing uh, in and about you know different creole languages from the caribbean um nonetheless he writes his play about haitian history in french and there's a few spatterings of creole and in the introduction to the play glisson says and he doesn't give a reason why, he just states, he says, I have decided not to do a simple um, sort of, you know, creolizing of this play, and I and I, and I welcome the interpreters of this work to put it into their own languages when they try and put the play, you know, when they try and perform the play. Mm-hmm. So on reading that introduction, and I remember speaking to this with Rossi Jacques Casimir in 2016 in Haiti, I remember saying to him, "Well, I have this play by Edouard Glissant. It's in French." And Rossi, even before reading the introduction, kind of was almost taking Glissant—how uh, uh, do you call it? He was—he was sort of taking Glissant' word, you know, uh, for his word basically, or take—how mm-hmm. do you say anything? Was taking at his word? Does that make sense? To
1: take him at his word, yeah. Exactly. exactly. He was
0: taking Gleeson at his word before yeah. even reading the introduction. A- as and a directive. <laughs> exactly. And Rossi yeah. says, you know, if we're going to perform it in Haiti, we have to translate it to Haitian Creole. Mm. It's, a, it's a political decision. Mm. Uh, Rossi's from, you know, he lives in down, uh, downtown Port-au-Prince. In, well, he was living then in Grand Rue. He's moved now. But at the time, he was living in Grand Rue, um in a very uh, very low-income you know, community, uh, considering Haiti is the poorest country in the Northern Hemisphere, that's extremely low income. So for Rossi, it's like it was a class question as well. Because obviously, the people that speak French in Haiti are people that have more access to resources, more access to education. But whereas the people that he's living with, I mean, you know, Rossi speaks French, because his father actually um, paid to put him through school when he was younger. Uh, but Rossi now lives, you know, since the earthquake, anyway, he's been living in that in that very poor neighborhood and Ross is from a very poor background you know so it is this question of class as well so there's a lucky few that can speak French and have had access to learn French but the mm-hmm. majority of people really do do not speak French so that 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 came in this question of uh, transforming the play not just into Creole but transforming into a very contemporary form of Creole from 2017. Because Creole, as with all languages, really are constantly updated with slang and different turns of phrase. And, uh, you know, there's lots of different like English words get incorporated and new French words. And even since now we've brought some of that, we brought the group to to Paris and they learned some slang from Paris. And now Mm -hmm. even as a group when we exchange, there's lots of like words from like very specific Parisian slang from from the northern suburbs of Paris from 93. You know, things like this um, get incorporated. So, And that's actually, even with the new work we're making now, we've incorporated all of these different elements of slang and very contemporary forms of language that are being spoken within that community and within the communities that we work with. So so these questions come into play. Um, On top of it then, then this question of secrecy um, and the sort of coding, the kind of codification Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't say Creole's code. There's definitely no form of coding in that sense because Creole is something which I think sort of supersedes or exceeds that relationship to mathematics and language. For example, I think it's you know Creole is something that seems to grow uh, through experience and grow through exchange and through and it kind of grows and develops. Through, through the life exchanges that I think the people have. Mm-hmm. Uh, for example, that's how these different English words are being incorporated into Haitian slang, Haitian Creole slang nowadays, for example, with the importance of, I don't know, we could say with American rap, how popular American rap is in Haiti. And a lot of words get sucked out of those and, and then get you know, spread out and move into the kind of language. But nonetheless, um, Haitian Creole was a form of communication or is a form of communication, but it developed as a form of communication within uh, you know, plantation slavery. So it was a way in which that the, the plantation masters could communicate with the people that were enslaved. So there was this sense of how, I suppose, the French plantation masters could have a sort of access in terms of communication to uh, to the people that they were enslaving to work on their plantations. But then within that space of exchange, the enslaved population also figured out ways to hide many, many different types of meaning behind you know, different words. So you would have one word that might have 10 different meanings. Mm-hmm. And th- those meanings will make, like the the way the sense gets brought out of that, of those different words, is how they're placed in relation to other words in a sentence, or how the story is being, or how the sentence is being told in the instance of its telling. And that's something that Leonard Jean-Baptiste talks about in the film, Ouvertures. He says that actually Creole language in that period, in like under plantation or under the, plant, the sort of plantation slavery in Haiti in the, in the, in the 18th century, um, he said it was a way to flee colonial vigilance. It was a way to sort of camouflage oneself mm-hmm. um, from, you know the way in which the plantation master was trying to have constant access to everything all of the time, so they could obviously control these people better. Um, so I think that 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 way in which Creole or Haitian Creole and the, and the way in which it's being understood and treated through the film by the group uh, definitely kind of runs along these lines in the sense that it's you know. I think if we could understand that each word has a sort of a great polysemic potential means that their words imbued with, with images almost, and that those images can have very different meanings when they're placed in relation to other different images. So in that sense, I would say that actually the way that they, particularly the members of the group of the ensemble use Creole, Haitian Creole is much more akin to poetry Mm -hmm. than Uh, just simple means of communication, yeah? Mm -hmm. So language, so like the written language that we might use for, you know, for an essay or for a documentary is very different than from how we might use written language for like a poem or for a fiction. But at the same time, they might be trying to do the same thing. Mm -hmm. So I would say there's elements in the film which are sort of essayistic and documentary and then elements in the film which then approach more these styles of poetry, whereby I think we're trying to situate ourselves more at the kind of the, 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 the peripheries of meaning, I think. And what I mean by that is that I think what I'm trying to separate a difference between like the essay and the poem, for example, is they're just different modes of address. And I think it's a a question of of how much we want to try and communicate and how much information we want to give across at any one moment. And sometimes there's a sort of resistance to give all of the information off like immediately. Mm -hmm. So a poem is still trying to communicate sense, but like I said, it's trying to communicate at the peripheries of meaning. And then that reminds me then of this idea which is from There's this quote I used to know, I can't remember it, but from Walter Benjamin, where he talks about translation. And he says, when you're translating a text, you're actually shifting yourself towards... I've got it written down somewhere. He says something like, towards the... Yeah, that's it, I've got it here. He says, unlike a work of literature, translation finds itself not in the centre of the language forest, but on the outside, facing the wooded ridge.
1: Hmm.
0: It calls into it without entering. So it's almost like again, just to mention this guy, Francois Macandal, who was this runaway slave, this, 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 uh, this maroon slave who had who had run away from the plantations and created his own kind of revolutionary society within the peripheries, on the edge of the plantation, in the forest, in the jungle. In some sense, I think that this is what Leonard is trying to speak about when he talks about Creole having this this power of camouflage that is a way, and he says in the film, to flee colonial vigilance, to run away from the the eyes of the plantation master. Mm
1: -hmm. So in that
0: sense, I, I really think this is how Haitian Creole was approached and understood in the film. So it's almost as if through translating the play into Haitian Creole, we didn't render it more. We, we didn't render it more transparent. We didn't make the play any easier to understand, actually. I mm-hmm. think we shifted the play into more of a kind of poetic sense
1: mm-hmm.
0: whereby pretty much only the very specific set of people from the community, within which we sh- where we showed the play could actually fully understand it. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, just one final thing, for sure, me, when I first went there, I couldn't speak Haitian Creole. But then from being with the group and working for, you know, four years with them now, I've learned enough to understand. And Haitian Creole is, what, you know, has a lot of similarities to French, and I speak fluent French. So I can understand enough, but a lot of the time I don't understand 90% of what we're shooting, <laughs> and to be honest, that's actually quite thrilling. <laughs> Je suis à Louverture. Mon nom s'est peut-être fait connaître jusqu'à vous. J'ai entrepris la vengeance de ma race. Je veux que la liberté et l'égalité règnent à Saint-Domingue. Je travaille à les faire exister. Unissez-vous, frères, et combattez avec moi pour la même cause. Déracinez avec moi l'arbre de l'esclavage. Super obscure
1: J'ai traversé les mers jusqu'au foie Jura, où l'on m'a vu mort pour chanter. Fantôme dans le fort de joue.
0: J'écris ma lutte à même les roches préhistoriques de la France. Où je trace mes lettres dans le sédiment. J'ai ma mauvaise vie et je pas abandonné. Après tout le temps, je me faire route là dans l'autre sens. Il Et trop tard pour m'excuser. Il toi trop tard pour m'expliquer la bataille de ma manière. toujours été révolution pour nous faire amis. Nous voulons que j'en travaillé là pile. pile. Mais flammes ne m'ont pas jamais. jambes pas de un petit temps
1: i came across this phrase in in some of the the writings that you had sent to me um, that really captivated me. This kind of idea of critical fabulation, which oh, yeah. is which is something akin to what you were talking about um, before, in the sense of the 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 movement, I guess you could say, of narrative or the movement of story. And you've sort of made a career thus far, I think, of of moving around the periphery, not in order to get to the center or not in order to understand something definitively, but in the ways, in in, in all the multivalent ways, you could express your findings. I mean, whether it's through music, whether it's through the archive, whether it's through um, the way in which you're shooting and the the environment in which you're shooting. And I just wanted to know in a more general way, what continues to, what you keep returning to, you know, there's a sense in your, in all of your works of this kind of return to sort of process in your own very particular way, um, what it is you're learning, what it is you're seeing, what is, how all the sort of missing pieces of your knowledge, perhaps um, kind of fall into place and create a different level of meaning um, in a sense, you know, and it's, this is a very difficult thing to do cinematographically, you know, it's, it's, um, but, but time and time again, you do it. And I just feel like there is the camera is there in your hands, but I, I feel you listening. I feel you're not the interlocutor. Mm. You, are, you are the listener. You are the receiver of this information. I mean, the lighthouse keeper in Sunstone. I mean, you know, all of these people are laying out these various historical or historicities for you. There's so many, this is one of the things that always captivates me about your work you know is is the the spaces you leave you know for the spectator also to step in but we also feel like those were the spaces there for you as well and you were it's fine to leave them there and move into fiction move into this idea of fabulation move into this idea but always with a very specific point of view, you know, it's not just this freewheeling, you know, history lesson um, that you're trying to impart to another population of people or to the spectators in the cinema or to people who are reading critical discourse on these things. You know, there's a really interesting balance between this deep intellectual approach and then, Something innate in you, that curious part of you, um, that feels it's that feels like it's essential, you know, to, to fill in these gaps, if you will.
0: Yeah, I mean, <clears throat> I think really, I, I I I suppose that the way that I've always tried to make films is just. I think I always understood cinema as as a medium through which I could bring together lots of my different interests. And I think I just, I'm just i just constantly, like um, I'm just very interested in, in things and I read a lot of books. Actually, I pretty much only read fiction and poetry f- for, for the last sort of few years. I kind of gave, I mean, I, I read theory and philosophy a bit. I'm in two reading groups uh, here in Berlin and in one reading group, we're reading hegel's phenomenology of spirit which is great fun in german and and we're reading and then another group we're reading black marxism by cedric robinson so th- so that for me is my theory and my philosophy but then i i read a lot of novels and during covid i was you know trying to read one novel a week which is not that you know that's not that crazy i know people that read you know 10 books a week or something but this is just one one book a week but when you read a lot and i listen to a lot of music and I watch a lot of films. And this is not necessarily sort of intellectual endeavor. This is just like, well, I'm not trying to paint myself as an intellectual. I'm just saying that I have this like huge appetite for mm-hmm. for like culture. And I like to read books and listen to music. So there's all this stuff constantly filling up my head that I'm thinking about. And and um so I always felt that cinema then was quite a good medium. To somehow bring all those different things together, so you can like make a film that sort of, you know, is a way that you can bring together all your different interests. So a film you can you can you can you can like discuss the books and the and the music and the and the other films or or, or different poems you're reading or you know like all this different material can kind of feed in, and then so so I always had this approach and then i think people found that often quite difficult because then someone would say that the films were sort of a bit too packed full of references and different things and someone once told me i had a, what they call an anxiety of influence which is where like the films are so obviously constantly referencing all these different you know thinkers that come before you but to be really honest i can't stop doing it and and i think that what that is and i i don't know if i take that as such a criticism this thing of anxiety of influence um one of the people that's really influenced my work for many many years is uh, the you know british ghanaian filmmaker John aumpra uh, who was part of the black accordia film collective mm-hmm. and and john has often spoken about um uh what he calls unseen par- partners, no, silent partners and unseen guests. Right? That's such that's such a nice way to think about it. Silent partners and unseen guests. And he talks about that basically as a way in which, like, all of these different things that you've been looking at and thinking about and reading and listening to, start to inform and feed into your work. Mm-hmm. So the work becomes this enormous conversation basically, with all these different people, alive, you know, living or dead. And it's a very specific way of making cinema. There's not, you know, not everyone wants to do it like that, but some people do. The, the filmmakers I like a lot do do that, you know. Um, and so it's like a certain approach to trying to make things whereby you kind of fully take on board how much those people that have come before you have influenced your work and have led into the practices that you try to make. And what that means is then in a way you have to be honest about that and you can't then put yourself forwards and say, well, this is my work and I'm the originator of this and I'm the sole author of these works. This is why I've been very interested in this notion of, you know, uh, collective authorship Mm -hmm. um, and also since around 2014, I I didn't like using the term like directed by, I would say, assembled by, this is like films all that is solid, Black Code, Code Noir, I think even actually the film in Bristol, I use that same term as well, because I tried to have this idea whereby I'm understanding that there's all these different pieces of information, it could be from an archive, it could be from a book, it could be from a piece of music, and you just start to try and piece them together in your timeline. And then the film becomes just the medium through which you can kind of this is why I like the term essay film, because you know, it's really in that sense that you bring together these different quotations and different different fragments of material to try and you know suggest an argument to put forward some ideas. Um, so so again, yeah, so just that that idea then of these 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 silent partners and these unseen guests. And then also how that is, um, I think, sort of ties into this idea that comes from a writer that I like very much from, uh, from Guyana called Wilson Harris, and he talks about what he calls uh, the infinite rehearsal. He even has a novel called Infinite Rehearsal, but he, I actually was reading an essay by him, and he says, you know, the infinite rehearsal is how he treats all of his novels, in fact. Whereby, on the one hand, he's trying to rewrite and rethink about certain specific mythological narratives from like ancient texts. Like, he's very interested in like epic texts by Homer or by Dante and how he tries to rewrite them uh, with his books in the 1980s in a very different way. You wouldn't necessarily notice it's, it's a rewriting of, you know, Dante's Inferno. So, he's, he's, doing, he's doing a rehearsal. Of those pre-existing works, but also how he rehearses different elements from his own preceding works as well. So mm-hmm. it's so that's what he calls an infinite rehearsal. And it takes the form of a spiral. It's like you sort of take your, your own work and you spiral it. And that's a way of, you know, I suppose also uh showing a recognition towards the people that have like influenced you and been important. And the reason then. I think how that connects to my position, or my the particular positions that I decide to take in response to the uh, the subjects that I'm talking about, especially with the projects in Haiti with overtures, mm-hmm. was one where I'm trying to gradually uh, lose that you know um, authorial control. Um, I'm trying to gradually lose, you know, to like, it's like I don't want to pee on a pedestal. you know, I think it's been there's been an important process since, I don't know, the last 200 years of statues of uh, like overly important big white men being knocked off their pedestals from mm-hmm. the Paris Commune up until, you know, Edward Colston in Bristol. Um, last year of the, these statues being pushed off their pedestals so why would I as an artist want to set up my own pedestal and put myself on the centre of that pedestal it's really the last thing I want to do and the last thing I've ever wanted to do Or, um, and I think with Ouvertures that, that was really what we were trying to do was mm. um, or, no I don't say we I'd say me in this instance I was trying to do a type of cinema that would really offer up a space of exchange and conversation whereby me as um, the filmmaker in that instance had to just sit back a few steps and listen Mm -hmm. and listen to what was being said Uh, not only like on camera or when the camera's rolling but also when the camera's off and when we're in the spaces in between shooting, Mm -hmm. how then to listen and how listening uh, listening attentively Mm -hmm. can help generate the subject matter of the film that we're doing Mm-hmm. And this is something I wrote about in a recent text, exactly. Um, this type of cinema that tries to listen to the communities that they're working with, rather than just simply extracting information from them. And I think that's something I learned very much from filmmakers such as John Acumfra. Um, You know, I would also say William Rabin, who was my teacher, who's mm-hmm. a British documentary filmmaker. Uh, the films he made in the 90s. Uh, around the Tower Hamlets area of London Um, for me this is a certain kind of ethical approach to a type of cinema practice and it's like through that ethics that you can I would hope generate or create different types of aesthetics
1: Mm -hmm.
0: Uh, personally that's what I want to continue doing with cinema and you know yeah, I wouldn't say we've, I don't think I've reached that point entirely. Uh, it's always an experiment and a process, you know. Well,
1: and, and and an impulse as well, you know. It's I an mean, impulse that's for sure. Exactly,
0: exactly. But also because the earlier works that I made didn't do that so much. I think the earlier works I made sort of around 2011, 2012, 2013, I felt that I was often talking too much for people. Yeah. And then there was a, Great decision around 2016, where I just said to myself, I can't, like, I have to change my method of, of, of filmmaking because it's not making me happy. Mm. And I found it very difficult to know how to approach people to the extent that all of my films before 2017 are shot with a zoom lens.
1: Mm.
0: Right. And now I only use a 50 mil lens. And if you shoot with a 50 mil lens, you have to get close to people. Yeah. There's nothing yeah. you can do. And if you want to get close to people, uh, uh, you have to like get to know them, and you have to learn the language. And like this is what we did with Ouvertures, and that's why that film took four years to make.
1: Yeah, well, it's exciting. So you are you are the ensemble as it stood in in that film is also continuing to film make together, or just you know in in terms of the growth of the group itself. I mean, it's. What I'm saying is, it doesn't feel like a one-off. Oh, we made this, you know, grand feature film, of which it is. It's quite grand, and it's in it's in its reach, you know, um, and and it's exciting. It has a pulse to it that's mm-hmm. that's really, really, um, you know, deeply moving because of that, because of that collaborative spirit, if you will, you yeah. know, because of that. That's and the other spirits that are imbued, of course, in the texts and in the various, you know, pers- personages that you're bringing forth from history. Um, so yeah, I mean, it's really beautiful. It's beautiful to hear this sort of personal um, progression, um, because there are, you know, many makers who find their niche, and that's sort of, you know, that's sort of it. Yeah. Um, yeah, so I'm very excited to see what you're what you're going to do
0: next. Um I mean the, that's the thing is actually I always like I I I'm never happy with what I do, I think. Like I always do things and then when it's finished, I look back on it and I say, "Well, I'm glad that's done, but I don't I don't want to do it like this again." Right. So like every single film I always try to do a sort of different even if it talks about similar subject, the similar subjects and same things. There's always always quite radical shifts in terms of aesthetics and different Mm. things I'm experimenting with Mm. in terms of narration and aesthetics and different different approaches to those Um, but yeah like with the ensemble now um, we're still working together we still we meet as a group online every every month pretty much at the moment we have a whole string of exhibitions coming up and we're going to be doing a theater tour uh, in France next year, we've did a theatre project in Switzerland this year in Brussels in in Geneva. Also mm. in Brussels, we're having a show opening in Berlin on Thursday at Savvy. Uh, we have a lot of activities, and what I'm trying to do with the ensemble is to uh, reduce my presence as much as possible mm-hmm. and actually try and become more now uh, to take on the role of a sort of. Um, uh, what's the word the mediator not not I'm not a curator I'm not I'm not curating anything I'm just like trying to like enable for those mm. guys from Haiti to actually um have some presence within a certain you know a certain artistic scene both in Europe and and in Haiti and this means for them you know uh cultural activities to be engaged within and it also means some money to to earn because they need to get paid of so course. me and Olivier are working pretty hard to try and you know continue interest in the group to get shows and to do theater performances so we can get funding so we can pay everybody and that so far is working so we're trying to use the ensemble almost as a platform from which we can um you know develop different 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 forms of art basically theater uh, literature poetry and cinema and really in that sense it's a sort of it's a kind of social and cultural platform that we mm. that we use it um from which to present the work of these eight young uh, uh, haitians who mm. you know before they did uh, 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 overtures with us were already very well known in the in the artistic and, uh, and performance scene in 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 Haiti but for them it was interesting to try and see well how could we you know start to work uh, in the european scene a little bit more to try and see and now two of them have actually moved to europe, one of them, sophanie she's in Brittany doing a doing a masters in French literature, and Leonard is living in Brussels doing a, a a bachelor's in philosophy. So you know, it was all just about creating opportunity to try and see um, how we could have this. It's difficult to put it into the right words, but I wanted because obviously, like something, nothing, something to sustain, <laughs> something to something to sustain that relationship. Also, mm-hmm. because again, if we're going to talk about extractivism and about a sort of European uh, heritage of extracting or of accruing and extracting wealth from mm-hmm. somewhere like the Caribbean uh, through forced labour, mm-hmm. then we didn't want to reproduce that history through the methods that we're approaching in making cinema. So one of the one of the you know big decisions was how do we make how do we build a relationship that can be maintained and and that means an economic uh, relationship too, that people have to be paid, need to earn money, and we need to continue to have activities because um, otherwise that relationship starts to sort of dissolve. And you know it's very hard to keep that going at the moment with the pandemic, mm-hmm. but we but we really we're really trying. and mm-hmm. uh, so far, so good we have lots of support from different very generous institutions mm-hmm. um, that have been helping us for the last year um yeah so at the moment it's going ahead and we're trying to make a new film but uh i just say watch this space <laughs> <laughs> you know dot
1: dot dot yeah yeah Thank you, Louis, so much for this delightful conversation. It was Thank so you. wonderful to get to catch up with you and, and talk to you, and I really appreciate it. That's all for this episode. We will return next week with our guest, Ezekiel Yanko. Lucid Dreaming is a production of Lono Studio, hosted by Pamela Cohn. If this is your first episode, please return, come back, subscribe, leave us a review, and recommend us to friends. Goodbye Goodbye, dreamers. dreamers.